Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. I've been doing the show for almost nine years now, and one person I've never had on the show in all that time was Jim Sheeler. Sheeler, of course, won the Pulitzer Prize in 2006 for his Rocky Mountain News story, Final Salute. The story was about Marine Major Steve Beck. He helped families deal with the loss of their loved ones who died in Iraq and honored their sacrifice. More than anything, the story kept memories of the dead service members alive, helping us to understand the toll the war was having. Sheeler turned that story into a book with the same title, and the book was published in 2008 and was a National Book Award finalist. Despite all that, I never had Jim on the show. I got to know Jim in July 2007 uh, when I went to Tom French's Narrative on Deadline seminar at Pointer. Jim was a presenter there, and at the time I was a reporter at the Columbus Dispatch. We both made the jump into academia in 2008. I went to Ashland University, and Jim started teaching at the University of Colorado. In 2010, he moved east to Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland. He was about an hour north of me, and we developed a friendship. He never came on Gangry the podcast, though, because I never asked him to. For so long, I was convinced the show needed to be focused on relatively recent publications, and by the time I started the podcast, five years had passed since Final Salute, the book, came out. Jim always told me about a project he was working on, though, one in Texas, and I was convinced he would have a new story at some point, and that was when he would come on the show. But then Jim died on September 17th. I was at home on Twitter when I saw a tweet from Josh Royland. Royland is a journalism and English professor at the University of North Carolina Wilmington, which ironically is where I got my MFA in creative writing so long ago. He and Jim had developed quite a friendship. We started out messaging, and he told me a story of a time Jim helped him out in ways he couldn't have imagined. Royland was between university jobs and was having a really hard time. When he's a tenure-track professor at the University of Maine, he wrote a piece about how he had to sell his own plasma to make ends meet. Once he left Maine, he was having a really, really hard time. That's when he got a call from Jim. Jim's dad had died, and and he had spent an entire semester in Texas settling his dad's affairs. Here's Josh Royland. But, uh, and so we talked, and we talked about the, you know, um, how he was doing and how things were going in Texas and how things were going uh, with, you know, figuring out what to do with the property and just the emotional uh, um, gauntlet that he and his sisters were going through with the property and uh, talked a long time. And then he was like, how are you? <laughs> and then he's like, well, how, how are you doing? How's, how are things in Iowa? And I was, and it's like, what, you know, what, the, what, what do you say? You know, like things weren't good. Um, and I was, I was really struggling. I was struggling financially. I was struggling mental health wise because of the struggles financially and other and professionally. And, and so I just told him, I said, yeah, you know, it's, you know, to be honest, things are, are, could be better here. And, um, here's what I'm doing to sort of make some money and, you know, had a couple of experiences with some folks here uh, that I thought would be helpful and they didn't end up being helpful. And, um, and, 
we didn't, we, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't, um, you know, labor on the point or anything like that. It was just kind of like, this is what's going on, but you know, and I was like, I was trying to be positive. Like I've applied for all these jobs, academic and non-academic and, um, um, and I was trying to be hopeful if, if only for myself. <laughs> One week later, Royland opened his mailbox and found a letter from Jim. Like a, a mailed letter. Uh, and I was like, oh, what's, what's, and I, you know, I opened it up and there was a check for a thousand dollars. So I was able to pay my rent, pay my bills. Um, yeah. And that was, um, yeah, that was like, I'm pretty speechless about sort of like what that meant. Like it was like, it literally, it, it literally was everything at the time. It was like, okay, I can pay my rent for another month. Um, I can pay my bills. Uh, I can, I don't have to go get stuck twice in the arm this week so I can get some groceries. And, uh, yeah. And at the same, it, it was unexpected. And at the same time, there was nothing that would have uh, surprised me less than that. Shortly after learning that Jim had died, I went to my son's cross-country meet. I got there a little early, and he told me one of his friends on the team had forgotten his running shoes. For this meet, he was going to wear another friend's shoes, and let me tell you, these shoes were falling apart. I could see the kid's socks. I was wearing a pair of my running shoes. Uh, my wife will tell you I have way too many, and I wear them everywhere. But anyway, it turned out that we wore the same size shoes. All of this was happening less than an hour after I saw the tweet about Jim dying, and I couldn't stop thinking about him and how he helped every single person he came into contact with. I took my shoes off and threw them over the fence to the kid who needed much better shoes to run 3.1 miles in. He threw me back the shoes that were falling apart, and I wore them for the next 25 to 30 minutes while I watched the runners loop around the course. I did that simply because I was thinking about Jim and what he would have done. Jim kept the memories of so many people alive through his feature obituaries and final salute. And now it's our turn to keep Jim's memory alive. There are five parts to this show. In part one... I'll finally get Jim's voice on Gangry the podcast. I talked with him back in October 2019 for a different project I was working on, and I recorded it. In part two, Ben Montgomery tells the story that Jim told us one night about his middle name. In part three, Steve Knopper tells us what it was like working with Jim back in the early 1990s. Part four, as Annie Nikoloff and Mike McKenna two of Jim's former students at Case Western Reserve University, telling us about the impact he had on their lives. And in part five, White House correspondent Jim Tankersley tells us how Jim helped him cover President Biden's trip to Dover Air Force Base to receive 13 bodies of U.S. service members, the last to die in Afghanistan. This is Gangry the Podcast. Stay tuned. Have you heard some of the great insights from guests on Gangry the Podcast? Insights like 
I've never had an editor throw an idea at me to write anything before. I always ask myself with yeah, stories, and, and I, I had the same question. I going through Nabokov's archives. It has a question mark in my Imagine I'm on your shoulder and that you're wearing a GoPro. Here is uh, carefully and Every single meticulously. about the whole Bundy story was just so interesting. It was a really weird one to write because every time I tried to outline... became a viral sensation, right? Like, it was the story. You cannot, you cannot do these stories or how we, uh, how we understand the world. They're how we share our experiences. Believe it or not, Gangry the Podcast is now in its ninth year. In all that time, the best narrative journalists have told us how they report and write their stories. You can still listen to every single episode. They're on our website, along with links to all of the stories and books that we've talked about. You can find it all at gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Thanks for listening. In October of 2019, I was on study leave and was working on a how-to-do narrative journalism book idea. I've since shelved the idea, at least for a little bit anyway, but I wanted to talk with Jim and ask him some questions about how he interacted with people who had just lost a friend or family member. I'd kind of forgotten about the talk we had once I moved on to another book project, but when I heard of Jim's death, I immediately remembered talking with him and and thinking that I had recorded it. It took me a couple days, but I finally found the audio file, and it turned out I recorded it in the same place I record these episodes of Gangry the Podcast. So this is Jim Sheeler's voice on Gangry the Podcast. I just wish I had done this so long ago. Okay, I really just have a couple of questions I'd love to ask you about like when you're when you're talking with people. I'd love to know your thoughts on this too. Um but it's always interviewing, right? But I don't like the word interview. Um mm-hmm. cuz it seems so formal. Does it, does that make sense to you? Like it seems yeah. like we should be we're having conversations. Um mm-hmm. and so I'd love anyways, I'd love to know your thoughts on what it's like to like to reach out to somebody who's gone through something traumatic. Um, yeah. How do you do it? Um, and then what's that, you know, what is that entire relationship like as you start um, developing it? Sure. Um, well, I think that one of the um, misconceptions, at least for, you know, a lot of the young reporters is that um, when you call up somebody who's, uh, grieving that they're um, that they'll be reluctant to talk about their loved one, and um, 99% of the time um, they're actually really uh, willing. Um, and especially once you get started, you know, that there's so many you know, people, especially in the U.S. I think don't really know how to talk about death, and so a lot of times like, they won't say anything or they'll say the wrong thing to a family, and then. Um, you know, you come up with your reporter's notebook and um, you want to talk about like, the one thing that they really want to talk about, which is their loved one. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, a lot of times those interviews end up, um, like you said, they're a lot of times not really interviews. A lot of times they're very cathartic. Um, you know, it's, it's one of the few times where you get um, a lot of, a lot of times when you're finished that it's someone who will hug you as you know, reporters don't get hugged that often, but, um, you know, some of those obituary interviews, um, I think people realize how important it is to 
to just tell the stories that they remember. And that's, that's what I do when I, you know, would initially approach somebody, whether it's on the phone or um, at their door, um, is just to say, um, you know, I, I just want to listen. I just, um, I know you, you know, all I have is this little one or two sentences about um, your loved one. And I know that there's so much more to that life. Um, and, you know, that's what we would get when we would, when, when the Department of Defense would release the names of um, service members who were killed is just there's one or two lines and that's it. And, you know, I would say, um, you know, I know there's so much more to their lives. And um, all I want to do is just come in and look through some photo albums and share some stories with you. Um, and uh, that, I think, um, open a lot of times will open the door. Um, it's, it, especially if it's, you know, um, th this is with, um, um, it, it's more difficult when there's, uh, like a lot of press coverage. Like if there's already, there were times when I would go up to the, uh, I would get to the house, um, where the service member had died and there were already, you know, TV trucks with the satellite, um, poles up and all that. Um, and I just, uh, you just, your heart just sinks and you're just like, Oh God, you feel like such a vulture. And, um, so in, for those cases, um, I actually kind of made a point that I would, um, make as soon as I, especially if I thought there might be other media there, um, on the way to the, um, to the house, I would use, I would just stop and pick up a, a sympathy card and, um, there in the car, I would just write, uh, I'm very sorry to be here. Um, but, um, you know, I, I really want to tell your son's story. Um, you know, I know this is, you know, I can't imagine what, how difficult this time is, but, uh, if you're willing to, um, just sit down and share some photos and stories, um, and memories with me, um, I promise to, um, honor his memory, um, uh, as best I can. Mm -hmm. And then I just, you know, would, uh, um, you know, put my, my name and phone number. And so if I walked to the door and um, the family member was like, get the hell off my porch, I would just say, I'm very sorry, hand them the note. And then that would be it. Um, you know, and, and a couple of times that worked, you know, that, that the families realized that, um, you know, uh, and I, I was, you know, I was adamant with the editors that I wasn't going to do the um, wait outside the victim's house kind of thing, you know, for like, if, even if somebody said, well, the post got a, you know, a quote uh, from a family member while they were walking out to the car or something, I would just say, oh, that's, that's too bad. Cause I'm not going to sit there. I'm just, that's, and that's, that's kind of my, my compass is just, you know, um, what would you do if, if this was your parent? Um, it actually kind of goes back to final salute, you know, like Major Beck said when, before he walks up to that door um, and something he tells all his Marines is that you treat that family the way you would want to be treated. Mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of that's what I tell all my reporters, especially, the, you know, if they're if they're approaching somebody who's um, a victim or has just experienced some trauma is that, you know, you have to imagine that person is your mother or your sister and, you know, whatever reporter that you would want to be there talking to them, that's the reporter that you have to be. Um, you have to um, 
you have to you have to be able to to be human about it and you can't fake it you have to you have to honestly care because people can tell when you don't um and uh that's you know i think that's one of the key things is that that people can see that you know when i'm going out that i really care about this story and treating it um you know with cotton gloves that you know i'm going to try and um really be careful and and get this right and um and you know honor their story so um i mean and that doesn't mean that it's going to be a eulogy or a you know all all uh roses um there's I, I you know the best the best obituaries are the ones that are in three dimensions like we are that that show the foibles of people as well as their um uh accomplishments so um you know you just want a, a well-rounded story uh, and a, a lot of that comes from um just getting people comfortable and i think that i i, I a lot of times will give people something to do um, you know, that's it's so we're not just sitting down across a table, um, like you said, having an interview. It's more of, um, you know, show me, um, you know, kind of what's what's what remains, you know, like I, I think the obituary shouldn't be about just what's gone, but what's still there. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I will go through the photo albums with them, but I go through their, you know, their loved ones, bookshelves. Um, I would like to see their office, you know, the just sticky notes they have on their computer, um, you know, and then if, you know, there's a couple of cases where I would ask what, um, you know, what was like your favorite thing to do with your dad? And um, uh, sometimes they would say, well, we, we would go, we'd be working on the car um, out in the garage. I'd say, well, can we go out there and talk? And so then, you know, we're out in the garage and, you know, all these, you know, pop, pop the hood on the, the car and, you know, there's all these other stories that come, come out. And also the person is completely comfortable because they're in a comfortable place that, um, that allows them to um, remember things. That's not um, some sort of stale uh, environment. So um, you want, you just want people to be comfortable. Um, and, um, and, and, that's also a matter of of, uh, of not hurrying and just letting, you know, everybody, all good reporters know about using silence, and I definitely use it a lot. I'm not a great question asker, but I'm a pretty good listener, and I think people understand um, that they that um, when I'm not talking to them, that I'm 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 just waiting for them to. Um, to figure out what it is that they really want to tell me. Mm-hmm. Um, if somebody breaks down, I just say, um, uh, take your time. Uh, and that's it. You know, I just say, take your time. And, um, and I think that that, that helps. Um, and, uh, I'm trying to think of other, uh, I guess one other thing that actually <laughs> interviewing technique that I learned actually after final salute, when I was on the other end of the, table i guess or other side of the notebook really um was when uh i mean i was terrified being interviewed <laughs> and um one reporter after i said said something about the book or the story or something with a reporter on the other end of the line said wow that was that was really beautiful that was pretty poignant 
and I kind of paused and I was like, yeah, that was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, and it made me, it made me feel a lot more comfortable. And I'd never used that technique before. I never, I mean, I'm sure I've said that, but it's made me a lot more conscious of when somebody says something pretty amazing that you recognize that, that you just say, God, that was beautiful. You know, I, I, I've never had it, you know, heard it put that way, but that's, it's really special. And then just, it makes people realize, okay, you know, that, that this guy gets it, you know, it's not just nodding and moving on to the next question. It's actual reactions of, um, I am there with you. I, uh, that is, yeah. So that's, um, Chuck Klosterman told me the same thing on the podcast. I, and I, didn't remember it, but I did when, when I finally read the transcript. Um, he said, actually, once his first few books started coming out and he started being interviewed, that that actually taught him a lot about how to do interviews, um, yeah. which is which is really interesting. It is. It's um, it's uh, when you, you I mean, you sit next to I mean, I definitely learned a ton from the reporters that I sat next to in the newsroom. But then, yeah, it's a completely different thing to um, to actually be the one being interviewed. So I think everybody should have to be interviewed at some point, right. all reporters. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Um, when you first started the obituaries, <clears throat> how did you reach out to the families? Uh, it was mostly so when I first started, um, I wanted to do uh, what was called um, a Colorado life. Um, and it was, you know, the idea was that we would write about somebody who had never been in the newspaper before. Um, you know, every week I would do a kind of long 30, 30 to 40 inch, usually, um, well, I'd say 20 to 40 inch story on, um, somebody who had never been written about before. So, um, you know, I would just, I would get the faxes from the funeral home and, um, uh, I would just cold call a family tell them who I was and say kind of what I just told you. I would just say that uh, um, I'm very sorry to be calling you, but um, you know, I'm, I'm with the newspaper and I'm trying to, um, to tell stories that have, have, have never been told before um, and stories that, that might be lost for the last time if they're not told. And all I know is just this tiny little bit um, about your mother or father or, um, and I'd just like to come out and talk to you about their life and um, look at some scrapbooks and share some stories. And um, th- at first, most people were are really were really uh, kind of baffled that I had called. You know, they would say, "Well, my, you know, they were they weren't anybody special. They weren't politician or a celebrity." And I said, "That's the whole point. You know, that's that's why I want to come out and spend some time with you." And um, sometimes that meant going to the funeral, and then um, somewhere else with them. And some of the some of the reporting for those stories was two or three days, um, and uh, and yeah, I don't know how many funerals I've sat through, but I I started figuring out which ones would be good to go to. You know, if if the funeral was going to have um, remembrances, or but or if it was just going to be a, a straight church service, you know, that sort of thing. So. Um, but yeah, um, almost inevitably, the family members, um, uh, there was always at least one family member that would warm up to the idea and then kind of usually convince everybody else. But it's pretty, it was amazing, you know, when I would go out to those, like, you know, um, east little little towns in eastern Colorado, and, um, you know, these people have never had a reporter in their house, and, um, you know, they're making me heirloom tomato sandwiches and you know it was just um 
really you, you just you get to know um, people because they're, you're they're trusting you with you know the most important thing they have, which is the story the story that will be told for the last time. So. Yeah, yeah. When when you were doing um, Final Salute, um, spending all the time uh, with the families who had lost um, their loved ones, those were I mean the the emotions are deep, right? Um, and I think you've oh, yeah. talked about this before. Um, did did that have what type of lasting effect did that have on on your own psyche? Yeah, it was it was really rough. Um, I mean, I kind of I feel I feel like you know you have to you have to feel these stories um, in order to write them, um, and that definitely hurts. I had plenty of uh, drives back to the office where I was just crying my eyes out and. I have tear-stained notebooks uh, from crying, you know, in front of the families with them, um, uh, and it does. It takes a toll, and I, there's there's a there's a balance that uh, you have to keep and a tightrope that you have to walk. But I definitely fell off a few times. Um, I ended up having to see a psychiatrist after all of that was over, just because I. Um, it just you get into that dark place and. Um, it can suck you in if you're not careful. So, um, uh, yeah, it's, um, you know, I, I think it, it was also crucial that I was, I could talk to, um, to Todd Eisler throughout the process. If, if I had been alone through that process, I, I don't know if I would have made it. So, um, you know, I could talk to Todd anytime and he, cause he's been, he'd even been in Iraq. Um, so, you know, that was, um, but it, it's just, it's just a matter of, you know, um, hearing those, uh, those whales, uh, the widows, um, that you just, you don't forget, you know, or playing on the floor with the little kids that, um, whose dads aren't going to come home. And then you, and then I would go home to my son who was basically the same age as most of these kids, um, whose dads, uh, weren't going to come home. So yeah, there's that, uh, there's a lot to unload, um, you know, and I, uh, you know, just like the soldiers, I didn't want to burden my wife with everything. So, um, yeah, I bottled quite a bit of it up and then it, <laughs> you, it eventually, uh, bursts something. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's really important to, um, to take care of yourself too. And it's, and I don't know what the solution is really. I don't, I think it's, I don't, I don't think I would have done the story any differently. Um, I think maybe I did too many of them, um, you know, right after final salute. Um, and I did the Brett Lundstrom story up in Pine Ridge, South Dakota. And, you know, that was a 42 hour wake on the, on the, um, Pine Ridge reservation. And, um, uh, Todd and I would take turns taking naps in a minivan we had parked outside in like 15 degree weather and I ended up catching pneumonia. <laughs> it was just, um, but you know, so yeah, it's, it was just, you know, mentally and physically, um, it absolutely can wipe you out. Yeah. Uh, do you, uh, did you develop, re- I mean, relationships in terms of like, do you stay in, in contact with a lot of the people that you wrote about? Um, some of them I do, not all of them. Um, since I'm not in Colorado, I think I would probably have a close relationship if I was still, if I was still in Colorado, but I still send, you know, Christmas cards, um, to all the families. They still send cards to me. 
Um, I keep in touch with them on um, Facebook and uh, things like that. Um, uh, I and then every once in a while I'll have one like one of the families Skype in. Um, I'm I'm probably maybe closest still to um, uh, Doc Anderson's family, um, Christopher Anderson. They uh, periodically will call me um, just to talk, um, and they they their son has continued to get all these accolades. They've, he had a, um, a hospital or medical center named after him in Texas. And so, um, and uh, the family, um, you know, thinks that, that uh, you know, my story has played a part in that. And so they'll, they'll call me and just, we'll just talk. Um, but yeah, I'm, I, uh, I definitely think that with, um, with these stories that, uh you you can't go through that without with the family and not realize that you're creating some kind of a bond that's that's definitely going to be lifelong um yeah that that uh you know they've shared a part of uh of themselves with me and the readers um that uh yeah will always be there yeah well i'm interested that's that's something that's interesting to me because um it, so often, you know, we teach, or at least, you know, uh, when I'm teaching students how to do news writing, I'm teaching them to be completely unbiased and completely, in a lot of the ways, detached. Um, you know, you're just going to go out and report what you see and hear and that type of stuff. Um, but doing narrative, especially this type of narrative where you're dealing with people who've gone through something traumatic, it's a, an entirely different type of reporting. And, and, uh, how you do it has to be different as well. Uh, and how you interact with the people you're talking to has to be different. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, you have to be, um, you just have to realize um, what a privilege it is to be there um, and that you're not just this casual observer. Um, you know, if somebody needs help, you know, I'm, following along a family and, you know, we go to the grocery store together and um, she needs help getting groceries out of the car. I'm going to do, I'm going to help unload the car. You know, I'm going to help, you know, I'm going to hold the baby if I, you know, if um, things are looking crazy, you know, it's, it's not going to change the essence of the story to, to be human in those moments. I mean, if there was a key moment in the story that was, you know, something was happening that I was going to be reporting on, but yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, um, Put put you know I wouldn't get involved or, or uh, interfere, but um, I mean to just to just be human to um, to to talk or um, sit down and have a beer or uh, whatever it is with with somebody I I don't see anything wrong with with just being human when you're um, when you're on a story it's just um, because yeah in journalism school if I was you know uh, you know, from from if I was just out of journalism school, I would be thinking, oh, you know, I I can't um, do any of that. Uh, I just have to be, you know, this person that's just uh, asking questions. But no, especially in these stories, um, you you want to be a person first. That was Jim Sheeler in October of 2019, being as helpful as ever. We're going to take a short break. When I return. I'll have four stories from people who knew Jim. That includes people who worked with him and people who learned from him. 
all of them considered Jim a friend. This is Gangry the Podcast. Gangry the Podcast is brought to you by the Digital Journalism and Sports Media Programs at Fairfield University. Digital journalism is designed to provide students with the skills, knowledge, and experience needed to succeed in today's quickly changing media world. Students take courses in everything from big data storytelling to podcasting to narrative journalism and more. Sports media is a new major that prepares students to work anywhere sports-related content is produced. Students take courses in journalism and broadcast communication. They can also take courses in public relations, film, and more. To learn more about the digital journalism and sports media programs, visit www.fairfield.edu. In November 2014, my university brought Ben Montgomery up to Ohio so he could give a reading of Grandma Gatewood's walk. Jim made the hour drive down from Cleveland for the event. The evening started in my narrative journalism class, which was scheduled to talk to Luke Dittrick of Esquire that night. So, in the classroom, we had Dittrick Skyping in and Montgomery and Sheeler in the classroom. It was pretty amazing. After we learned of Jim's death, so many people took to Twitter and started telling stories about Jim. Montgomery told the story of Jim's middle name. I asked him to tell the story for this episode, and while we were talking, we realized we were likely together when Jim told us this story. It happened in a bar in Ashland, Ohio, after that amazing narrative journalism class and after Ben's reading. That night, the three of us and one of my students, his name is Zach Lemon, headed to O'Brien's, my bar of choice when I lived in Ohio. Now, I wanted to make sure that Ben and I weren't just imagining this happening to us at the same time. So I reached out to Zach, who has gone from being a reporter in Ohio to getting a law degree and working as a law clerk for a federal judge in Toledo. He said a middle name story sounded familiar and that the name isn't pronounced like you would expect. That was all I needed to know that this did indeed happen on the night of November 5th, 2014 in Ashland. I'll let Ben take over from there. Well, I'll set this up just, just a little bit because um, I can't remember. I know I heard this story a couple of times, but it's one of those that I uh, tell myself because I think it's so cool. So um, anyhow, I knew Jim, I want to say like, I met him around the time he won the Pulitzer just before that he started doing uh, the national writers workshop circuit. And I'm almost certain that we met in Wichita, Kansas at what probably was the very last national writers workshop to ever happen. Maybe probably in Wichita and almost certainly, you know, uh, anywhere West of the Mississippi. I think they just stopped doing them around 2006, 2007. Uh, 2008, maybe. Anyways, Jim uh, struck me as one of these guys who was careful and quiet and uh, earnest and um, 
sometimes guys like that uh, make the very best writers in my mind because so many of us try to be bigger than ourselves. Uh, we talk big, we tell big stories, we one up each other, we, you know, try to drink each other on the, under the table. And Jim was not that guy. He, he was on the edge of that when he did hang out. Uh, but he was always he was a slight, slightly older, uh, 10 years older than me, I guess. And um, just, you know, a hundred years more responsible. Um, and it came out in his, ref, in his writing, that, that kid, that earnest care, that sincere care about doing right by somebody uh, not just in the Pulitzer package, but in the work that I thought was, you know, as compelling, which were those short obituaries, um, you know, which he propelled onto the stage at that time. Uh, people have done these through the years, of course, but he took that and made it, uh, made it his and made it better than it could have been, you know, uh, made, as that, made it as good as it should have been. Uh, and in fact, I remember reading his book a bit on the way back from that conference because I wasn't aware of Jim, wasn't aware of that book, um, but I grabbed it uh, and uh, read it cover to cover on the way home uh, and was so moved that I was like, we ought to start doing this, you know, at the St. Pete Times. So anyhow, Jim and I kept in touch over the years. I feel terrible because I haven't talked to him in quite a while. We just naturally kind of uh, fell apart. He lived in Ohio. Um, I bumped into him a few times on the road, including at Ashland when I went up to visit you, Matt, and we got to hang out with him. This is uh, this is the story in my mind that uh, belongs to Jim. And I think he was working on this for some reason. I think he was recording an audio version of this story, but it never quite came together. Um, so I hope this audio exists out there somewhere on some hard drive. Maybe somebody will find it and make a story about it. But it goes like this. Jim was curious about how he got his middle name. Uh, most people knew him as Jim Sheeler. Um, that was his byline. But his full name was James Expedite Sheeler III. And that's how he told the story, how he pronoun pronounced that word, Expedite not expedite. So, um, but it was just a name. He, he didn't really wonder too deeply about it until he was grown up. And, uh, and eventually he, uh, asked his dad about it. His dad, of course, was James Expedite Sheeler Jr. And James Ex Expedite Sheeler Jr. tells James Expedite Sheeler III that the story started with his grandfather and his great grandmother. So when, great, when Jim's great-grandmother was pregnant with Jim's grandfather, uh, she got some bad news from the doctor one day, and it was, um, your baby is doomed. This pregnancy is troubled, and there's nothing that we can do. This, this baby essentially has no hope of being born alive. And so with that news and desperate, this woman went quickly to a nearby church, which was Our Lady of Guadalupe in New Orleans, right in downtown New Orleans, very a popular church. You'd probably recognize it. You saw a picture of it from the outside. Uh, and she, she went in the church, but every um, enclave where there was a saint was occupied with other uh, penitents, uh, people pr praying. 
And so she walked around until she found the one that was not occupied. And she didn't recognize this one, but there was no line. And she threw herself down at the feet of this uh, saint statue. And she prayed with everything that she had, uh, asking this saint to um, help this baby in her womb survive. And she said, she made a promise to the saint, if that happened, she would honor the saint in some way. And so uh, she returned to that statue every day, making the same prayer until the day the child was due. And uh, she gave birth to a happy, healthy baby boy. Mother and child were fine. And she bestowed upon uh, this child the name of the saint who had helped her, who had interceded on her behalf, Expedite, thus uh, naming her firstborn James Expedite Sheeler. Jim Sheeler's uh, grandfather, who in turn named his son James Expedite Sheeler Jr., who in turn named his son James Expedite Sheeler III. So Jim was uh, still curious, and and uh, this is like the early days of the internet, I want to say, like around 2000 or something, like late 90s. So he starts Googling uh, St. Expedite and finds like basically no information. There's not a backstory. There's not an origin story. He does find that there are references to St. Expedite in two places on the whole of the earth's crust. One New Orleans and one was somewhere in, uh, that he had never heard of in South Africa. So um, he decides to go to New Orleans to try to learn what he can about St. Expedite. Flies down there, goes to the church, introduces himself. The sisters uh, run and fetch the oldest sister, bring her out and Jim uh, asks her what the origin story is for St. Expedite. And she then explains that in the 1790s, years, years before in New Orleans, uh, a crate arrived for the sisters at Our Lady of Guadalupe. And uh, it was from Rome, from the Vatican. And so they hustled down to the docks and they opened this crate up, not knowing what they were gonna find. And inside they found a, a statue of a, presumably a saint that they didn't recognize. And there was no information inside. And they checked all of their books and all their sources and they couldn't find this saint anywhere. Um, so they had no name for, uh, for the saint, but on the outside of the crate, stamped several times, was the word expedite, expedite. And so, they dragged this saint back to the, to the church and to the school, and they put it up in the hallway of the school and started calling uh, this unknown saint, Saint Expedite or Expedite. And um, over time, the students gradually started referring to the saint as, as Saint Expedite as well. And then uh, as more time passed, the students developed a prayer, a very specific prayer to Saint Expedite, and they gave the saint certain saintly qualities, um, uh, like like most saints have. And um, miracles happened, evidently. Uh, things were granted, and so forth. And um, and pretty soon, you know, as time passed, we're talking decades and decades and decades. More and more students, more and more nuns, and so forth. Um, the name kind of stuck and the, 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 the tattered threads of the joke that landed St. Expedite there at first began to, you know, disappear. And before long, this saint actually had, was a saint. Nobody questioned that. 
and um, and you know, along came a woman who uh, needed the saint's help to deliver a child. And so uh, Jim, uh, you know, is I remember him telling this part of the story, and it, it was just he had this manner where like his eyes would kind of he always had the very warm eyes, but he wasn't excitable, you know. A lot of people in our group of friends get really aggressive and like, you know, we pound the table and laugh and um, uh, and we're bellicose and Jim was quiet and reserved, but he got tickled by this story and his eyes would get excited and he would smile a little bit as he told uh, the story about St. Expedite. But he did some reporting around that. He talked to people who visited the saint and... Um, uh, I remember he talked to one guy who said, yeah, man, every time I, you know, I have a cantankerous old truck, it won't start sometimes, but if I crank it, it won't start. Then all I have to do is say, close my eyes, say St. Expedite three times. And I turn, next time I turn over every time it fires right up. So St. Expedite was actually granting, you know, as late as 2000 was granting some miracles to, uh, to people who, who prayed to St. Expedite. I thought that was a killer story and probably should be a version of This American Life or something. Um, but it, 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 uh, it's a fine, magical story to represent this guy who was such a, such a neat guy and such a fine, fine writer and such a good friend uh, to many of us. Um, I hope it, uh, I hope it um, helps him uh, helps us remember him, I guess. That was Ben Montgomery, the real gangry. Ben has now written four books. His most recent was A Shot in the Moonlight, how a freed slave and a Confederate soldier fought for justice in the Jim Crow South. He's now a Tampa Bay reporter for Axios. Like I said earlier, after Jim died, my Twitter feed was flooded with people telling stories about him. One series of tweets caught my attention. Steve Knopper has been a full-time freelance writer for 25 years. He's written for Rolling Stone, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, and GQ. He's written several books. He worked with Sheeler for a couple of years at The Daily Camera in Boulder, Colorado starting in early 1992. Knopper's tweet told a story about a time when Sheeler and he stumbled out of a bar and saw some massive big wheels with adults riding them. The two of them knew they had to write a story. Knopper went and found that story and tweeted a PDF of it, and reading the first couple of paragraphs, I could hear Jim's writing voice, one that would grow to win a Pulitzer. Anyway, Here's Knopper telling the story of that night. Jim and I became friends in a way that I become friends with a lot of people, and I think Jim is the same way, which is to say, stupidly. He and his boss, uh, the business editor, a guy named Greg Todd, who's also a young guy, a little bit older than us. We were all in our 20s then. Um, they used to have these like knockdown, drag-out, rubber band wars in the newsroom at the Daily Camera. And they would just be like chasing each other around and like crouching behind posts and desks and around corners and just, you know, trying to ambush each other. And it was nuts. And 
a lot of people were annoyed by this and it would, it would just kind of spill over to wherever you were working. And one day Jim just kind of spilled over. And the next thing you know, we were talking and it, it turned out that he was a huge music fan as everyone knows, but I didn't know that then. Um, and so he started talking about like what kind of music he liked and, and, you know, because I'd written about music at the time, he'd read some of my articles and we talked about that and we just got, you know, we, we made this friendship. And so, and then it was great because on, on that side of the newsroom, business and features were on the same side and it was kind of blocked off from the news desk. Um, there weren't that many young people, um, like people in their early twenties, but Jim and I were, and, and we just started to, you know, bond and then we started to go out and then we would stay out late and, and go to all the bars in Boulder and sample, you know, everything Boulder, Colorado had to offer. And one night we were drinking at a bar called Potter's and it was like one in the morning. We stumbled out of Potter's, this bar in Boulder at one in the morning. And we're trying to figure out how to get home. We didn't want to drive. And we look up and there are like this vision from the heavens. There's like 30 adults riding up and down the Pearl Street Mall in Boulder which is a, a pedestrian mall on big wheels. And they weren't just kids, big wheels. They were like big wheels that they'd cut up and souped up with boards and shocks and like really sophisticated engineering devices, you know? And, um, and so Jim and I turned to each other in our haze and we said, this is a story. So I think Jim had a notebook with him. That's my very hazy memory of this. But it's possible we ran to the Daily Camera building, which was down the street, and grabbed our notebooks. I can't remember which. But either way, we started to, you know, follow these big wheel racers around. And they were just like – it was like a a, um, a roller derby. It was, it was like uh, they, were, they were stumbling into each other. They were crashing into each other. They were riding down these concrete steps. Uh, and they were just – it was great. It was just this crazy thing. And we finally – we interviewed everybody and we finally located the leader who was wearing a gold helmet and a gold cape. And his name was Captain Obvious. And he explained that he was a, a recent engineering student, a recent graduate of, of University of Colorado. And he did this interview and they had all kinds of like accoutrements. They had, you know, a piglet water bottle and all these different things that we were able to take notes on. Anyway, it was just one of those goofy things that you see when you're drunk and in your early 20s. But we went back to the daily camera by this point, two or three in the morning and um, wrote up a little story. And, you know, the way our method was whoever was in the bathroom, the other would write. So we sort of alternated paragraphs that way. And um, sure enough, we wrote the story. It was like 12 inches in, in newspaper speak. And um, we, we left it. I think we left a physical printout on the city editor's desk. And it was either the next day or the day after that. Um, it ran in the newspaper, basically, as we wrote it. I think there's one typo in there. Um, and it's great because it's like I can I don't know if anyone else can, but I can hear Jim's voice in the beginning of the piece and I can hear mine at the end. And then there's all these quotes. So, uh, so, you know, and then the guy who Captain Obvious is this great guy named Matt Armbruster, um, who kind of used, this was his first publicity and he kind of used it to build this ongoing business trying to sell souped up big wheels. I may have some of that wrong, 
but uh, but he's been he's been working on that as a as kind of a side project all these years. And um, now and then we connect. In fact, another buddy of mine, I don't know, six or seven years after that, long after Jim and I had left the camera and Jim, I think Jim had even won the Pulitzer by that. I, I can't maybe not. I can't remember. But um, my friend had this bachelor party in Boulder and it was on the Pearl Street Mall. And uh, sure enough, who should spontaneously happen by but Captain Obvious and his big wheel crew. And I was like a hero for a night because I gave all the all the members of the bachelor party, you know, I connected them with Captain Obvious, and they got to and, and my friend who was the the groom um, got to ride the big wheel down the steps at the West End Tavern. So that's that's the long version of the story. It was Jim and I talked about that to the end. It was just one of our great exploits together. We loved it. That was Steve Knopper. If you'd like to read the big wheel story that ran in the daily camera, head on over to gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, the podcast.com. Annie Nikoloff and Mike McKenna were students of Jim's at Case Western Reserve University. Nikoloff is now a reporter for Cleveland.com, and a plain dealer. McKenna is a clinical psychology graduate student in his fourth year at Ohio State University. But several years ago, they were students who were eager to take Jim's classes. Anne came into case wanting to be a writer, but thinking there was no way to ever make a living doing that. Jim showed her differently. Mike was the editor of The Observer, Case Western's independent student newspaper. And even though Jim wasn't the advisor, he was often helping student reporters with their stories. Both of them took classes with Jim, including magazine writing, multimedia journalism, and others. McKenna jokes that his English minor is actually a Jim Sheeler minor because all of the courses that counted for it were taken with Jim. Even after they graduated, they stayed in touch. This is a common thread with every single person that I've talked with. We all move on in life, but Jim managed to stay in touch and have an impact on people's lives, even when they didn't see each other every day. Here's my talk with Nikoloff and McKenna. Uh, tell me about uh, both of you, because I think, uh, Annie, I believe you said that you both worked on the, the, the newspaper and uh, Jim was advising it, correct? Uh, actually, he, he wasn't the advisor when we were on it at that time, um, but he was a big, he was kind of an unofficial advisor. I don't know how you would say it, Mike, but he, he helped us with quite a bit of the newspaper. Yeah. Um, but yeah, not in a, officially in that role until after we graduated, uh, but we were often in his office, especially Mike, who Mike was the editor-in-chief, so I don't know if you... Yeah, so our um, our advisor at the time, um, who's still at the university, is this awesome professor named uh, Bernie Jim, um, and I think Jim Sheeler took over officially maybe the year after we left, or the you know maybe two years after. Um, but he was kind of becoming more and more involved with it uh, while we were there. He taught a lot of us in classes, and. Uh, you know, Jim would frequently edit our, like, the hardest ones we, you know, the edit, the, the hardest stories we did. So we did a few, covered a few big lawsuits against the university that were a little bit um, challenging. We covered a, a, several obits during uh, kind of my time at the paper, um, ranging from 
um, a plane crash, which killed a few students, to um, um, some uh, suicides within the community. So uh, some very heavy topics. And, and Jim was always a kind of guiding light through that. He would, you know, edit things with take his pen and you know it he he was so good about building up your writing and like telling you how good it was while also just completely transforming it and pulling the thesis out of it uh, i'd be covered in edits um and the amazing thing is for some of these he would do it on deadline like we'd call him wednesday night which before we went to print at like 7 8 p.m and he would go through and like you know give us feedback so he he loved the paper he was a big uh supporter of it um, and he just really wanted us to be able to do, you know, good work that highlighted members of the community. And he had, you know, so many ideas. The, the fortunate thing about the Observer at Case is that it's a weekly paper. And so he was always talking about feature journalism and just diving deeper and yep. not just doing these quick news items. But that was just, you know, knowing Jim's writing, knowing that that's where he excelled, having him was such a treasure just to go through these stories and really make it shine like mike was saying just all yeah. those edits went such and, a long way and annie can you give them him context on you know what the journalism department is like at case because i think you've got a gym <laughs> like, <laughs> it is just jim i mean we would have um occasional visiting professors do a class but you know there first of all and some people might know this but case like the english department at case is very close-knit i love the english department and they're stellar professors but it is a very small part of Case Western. Case Western is a school for engineers and, you know, pre-med students and things like that. Um, and something that was so amazing about Jim's classes, you know, there weren't many people who wanted to be journalists that were going to Case Western. So he would be teaching engineers how to write a feature article and like just sparking this interest for every kind of student, including ones like me who actually wanted to go into the field. But yeah, it was it was just Jim. So if you were interested in journalism, you were in Jim's office like all the time because you had to be. And, and you know, so J Jim in that regard, it was a lifeline for the student paper because, you know, we didn't have, we're not like a Northwestern or an Iowa or, you know, some of these other universities where people are beating down the door to be on the paper because that's their opportunity to get into the field. Like it was... It, it took a lot to recruit people sometimes. And so, you know, even having Jim, Jim would try to get people from his classes to write for the paper. He would, you know, try to get his people, the the work that people did in the paper. So it was, um, as an independent newspaper, it was, it was a huge help. So, it's yeah. funny because what you're describing, and I, and I knew all of this, right? Because I, I talked with Jim a lot and I, and when I was at Ashland, um, I would come up oftentimes and sit in on some of his classes. I may have been in a class that you all were, <laughs> that yep. you were sitting in um, at one point in time, at least two I remember specifically, Justin Heckert and Lane DeGregory. Um, yep. yep. So yep. If, uh, yep. if either of you were in that class, I was probably also in it, which is a little strange. Um, when when were you, uh, when were you both, uh, when were you at Case? Uh, 2012 to 2016. Yeah. And, and I, what, what uh, did you, both of you take classes with Jim or just, uh, just, yeah. What classes can you remember? Uh, Annie, did you take his intro class? No. Um, okay. I took magazine writing. I took that as well. And then I took two elective. You could, um, if you did an internship, you could count it as a class. And Jim would just, you just have to meet with Jim once a week to talk about whatever you were doing in your internship or, or whatever. So I did that twice with Jim. Um, and those were the only formal 
and he was my advisor too uh, for my capstone. So I guess uh, the capstone class, technically. Yeah. I, I took his uh, magazine writing and then also his multimedia journalism class, which was a, a great time. Um, and then I also did an independent study with Jim when I was working on the student paper. Uh, you let me, we essentially would critique the paper on a weekly basis. Um, I like to joke that my English minor is actually a Jim Sheeler minor because all the courses for it were either with Jim or like AP credit that I brought in. So that those were, those were my, uh, my English minor. Yep. Yeah. Can, can both of you tell me what you're doing now? Um, so I'm a, I'm a journalist. I, I work in Cleveland for cleveland.com and the plain dealer. Um, I've done that since I graduated. Uh, I started as an intern and now I'm a reporter. So. Yeah, I'm a uh, clinical psychology graduate student, uh, fourth year at uh, Ohio State, uh, and I currently am researching, I do kind of neuroimaging and neuropsychology research um, in Alzheimer's disease uh, between the start of, or under, between the start of graduate school and um, graduating from undergrad. Um, I was at the National Institute on Drug Abuse doing research for a couple of years, so yeah. So I, this is one question I can't wait uh, to hear the, the two different answers. And that is, how did um, knowing Jim, taking his classes, but also I'm obviously you did more than just take his classes, right? I mean, you, uh, I'm, I'm assuming uh, you knew him outside the classroom. And even after you graduated, I'm assuming you maybe probably stayed in touch. What did you learn from him that's helping you now in terms of... Um, from what you learned in the classes with journalism, but beyond that as well. We're going to start with you, uh, Anne. Um, I mean, for me, I'm a journalist because of Jim. Like, I, I can't, uh, I cannot overstate um, how important it was meeting Jim when I did. Uh, I came into case knowing I wanted to write, but not knowing if I wanted to do creative writing or poetry or, or anything like that. Initially, I was uh, focused on creative writing and I met with Jim and just talking to him about the process of writing. I, I think this is the greatest thing I learned from Jim was just that creative writing is journalism. It, it's just a different form of creative writing. It's telling someone else's story instead of coming up with one out of thin air. It's, you know, uh, you don't have to sacrifice the things you love about creative writing. You don't have to tell an inverted pyramid story. You can really, you know, do things differently. And just the joy of journalism and create, like, it just all kind of meshed together so clearly uh, that first time I met him. And the other major thing I think I learned from Jim was just, um, you know, and I think it's something that after graduating, yeah, we, we were friends, you know, Mike and I would meet up with Jim and catch up over coffee or go see a show or, or meet up for a beer or whatever. Um, and we stayed in close contact, but it was always just his compassion. And I think on every level for, for friends, for uh, subjects of stories, just the level of care that he had, getting on people's level, he never acted like he was, uh, you know, higher than anybody. I remember the first time I met Jim and I called him Professor Sheeler and he immediately corrected me. He was like, no, Jim, like, we're not, we're not gonna <laughs> do that. And, you know, gave his phone number out to everybody in class. I, I texted him over the years just with random questions about stories I was working on in my job. And he always just made the time. And 
Um, you know, I think learning how to be compassionate, a compassionate storyteller, a compassionate human being uh, through gym, it's just invaluable, both with my job and I, I think it made me a better person too. How about you, Mike? Yeah, I mean, I think that I think it's been said in a number of kind of the obits, so I'm not the only one to, you know, putting this out there. But I think that, you know, Jim's talent was kind of seeing the humanity in everyone and seeing that everybody had a story. Um, and he was he had this like presence to him, which I think is just a value, like not only makes me a better, you know, professional, but also like a just a better person where he wanted to be there. He wanted to be present. And he, you know, thought everyone was kind of deserving of that time and that intention. And I think that's very cool. Uh, one of the things, you know, as a psychologist and, you know, um, going down this road kind of in this neuropsychology area um, is that we do a lot of like clinical interviewing and a lot of taking people's history um, to try to kind of figure out how we can help them, how we can, um, you know, better kind of assist recovery. And, I, I really enjoy that process because it's an opportunity to, to kind of get to know somebody, to get to know their story, get to know, you know, who they are and, and what um, is impacting them. And, and I don't think I was um, as patient or as kind of skilled at doing that before kind of meeting Jim or without having kind of gone through um, um, his, uh, his, his work. I also think he's the ultimate uh, promoter of, that print journalism is still alive and valuable. So I think that uh, um, that was always encouraging that there is something, such thing as kind of truth and that, you know, we can, we, it's important to, to kind of share that. Yeah. I know that was all over the place though. So. Was there anything you, uh, when you think back on the classes, any uh, interesting stories that, that jump back into your head when you think of Jim? Oh yeah. I we were talking, me and Mike were talking about this on the phone and it was when Linda Gregory came to case and I think it was after the class, we all like Jim asked if we wanted to go get dinner with Lane and we're like, yeah, of course. So we went to, we all crammed in Jim's little car and we drove to Sokolowski's, which is this famous pierogi restaurant in Cleveland. And unfortunately it closed last year during the pandemic. But, um, you know, just sitting around a table with this Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, two Pulitzer Prize winning journalists, right? It's easy. Jim didn't talk about that a lot, but I mean, you're, you're in the presence of these incredible storytellers and just eating pierogies in Cleveland. Like, how many students can say they got to do that? How many students can say they got to sit at a table with the two people who created Serial, the podcast? Like Jim arranged for that. He just got so many journalists connected with his classes. And, you know, you could tell that like the friendships that he formed were like so strong. He was just catching up with these people, shooting the breeze with them. And it was such a special experience uh, to be able to learn from not only Jim, who on his own would have been fantastic to just learn from Jim, but he brought in so many voices. Uh, and that pierogi dinner, that one stands out to me, uh, definitely. I have that's, to say, a... I do have to say that Lane was there once and I came up from Ashland and after the class, it was a night class. We went to a bar that's like right on really close to campus. Was it the Jolly Scholar? It, I don't know which bar it was, it was but we... it was probably the Barking Spider. Oh yes, that's exactly spider. what it was. It was the Barking yep. Spider, and we closed yep. the place down. The three of us did. Yep. That so. sounds about right. 
Yeah, we did a class in the Barking Spider one time, and um, I think it was like after the class was over, um, everyone who was of age, he got he got a round of beers, and I think we got sodas because Mike and I were both, I think just under, we were like 20 years old, so. Yeah, yeah. yeah that was his favorite, uh, that, that was one of my favorite things to do as part of his classes. Um, the final class, um, you, you would kind of submit your work as your final, you know, either a multimedia project or magazine article, whatever it was. Um, and we would present them all at, uh, usually it was at the Barking Spider, which was this little bar uh, in the middle of campus um, that Jim loved. Uh, and it was such a, like an awesome celebration of just everybody's talent and everybody's, you know, all the articles were so different. Jim had this great way of preserving everybody's unique voice while also polishing up and making it, you know, really good. So, well, and something with that, I, you know, a couple of years ago, I wrote a story about a person that someone else in our class had written about for class. So I texted Jim about it, just thinking he might be interested. It was actually an obituary about that person. He had passed away. And so I let Jim know, and he had a copy of that student's paper with all of his edits on it. Like he didn't erase that file. Like he kept everybody's work just to revisit it. And he sent it to me. He's like, oh, I remember the story and um, just really held on to things. Really sentimental guy too. So um, I know one thing uh, that he always asked uh, when he was writing obituaries, um, every single person he talked to uh, would say, um, what is something that you learned from this person's life? You know, I, I feel like I've asked you about like, what did you learn in class and that type of stuff. But, um, when you think back about on, on Jim, what, what, what did you learn about him? Uh, what did you learn from, from, from him? Uh, just in terms of, of how, how we should live. It's hmm. a good question. I think, you know, I wouldn't stop it just saying that everybody has a story because I think, you know, that's true, but I think everybody has a story that deserves to be shared and everybody has a story that deserves to be listened to with care. And I think that's something I try to keep in mind every day that, you know, even on really petty levels, I think about this when I'm driving in my car and somebody cuts me off and it's like, you're so quick to imagine like reasons somebody did something, but you're not so quick to think about what they're living and just what they're living through. And I think Jim, through his life and just through his, the way he approached people and the relationships that he kept with people, it just it reminds me of that, that like everybody is going through something, everybody's living through their story. And um, it's always great to hear those stories. Yeah, I mean, um, I'm definitely on top of what Annie just said, because I, I would definitely echo all of those points. Um, I think that uh, Jim did a great job of like, highlighting some of his like most you know beautiful and you know wonderful stories were absolutely heartbreaking and so i think it was an opportunity that there can be you know we can learn something from even these really sad situations there are these really you know um uh heartbreaking situations that, that that's part of humanity um and that um there is some beauty beauty there that was ann nikoloff and mike mckenna 
Nikoloff is now a reporter for Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. McKenna is a clinical psychology graduate student in his fourth year at Ohio State. The first person I talked to about Jim after he died was Jim Tankersley. Ever since we talked, I knew his story was going to be the last part of this episode. Tankersley is a White House correspondent for the New York Times, but back in the early 2000s, he and Sheeler worked together at the Rocky Mountain News. Tankersley moved on. He's been a reporter at Vox, the Chicago Tribune, and the Toledo Blade before landing at the Times. In late August, he was told he would be the pool reporter following President Biden to Dover Air Force Base for the arrival of 13 service members. They were the last to die in the 20-year war with Afghanistan. Tankersley didn't know how he could report something so important, but he did know someone who could, Jim Sheeler. He reached out to his friend for help. I'll let Tankersley take it from there. So I met Jim in 2003 when I started at the Rocky Mountain News in Denver and um, was in awe of him from the start. Just this amazing, quiet master of the craft there in the newsroom. We had some funny things in common uh, other than both being named Jim. Um, we had both been sort of passed over for hiring by the Denver post and we're both still kind of not over it. Um, and we both just loved telling stories and his job obviously was very much to tell stories all the time. And I had much more of a general assignment. I covered politics. I covered the legislature. I, I sort of took the chances I could to write narrative, but was just in complete awe of Jim's ability to do it all the time on everything he wrote. And at some point we started a writing group, a group of us, and, and I've said this to a couple people, but ha- being in a writing group with Jim Sheeler uh, is like having like a neighborhood jam band on Friday nights and Charlie Parker shows up. You know, he's just, he was just so thoughtful and good and obviously on a different plane than the rest of us. Uh, but we would talk about word choice and we would give each other points for making up words and slipping them into the newspaper. And um, we would talk about characters and how do you get people to talk to you and how do you frame a story and, you know, what's the right way to tell something. And we'd, we'd work through things we were having problems with, um, all of which is to say that when I left the Rocky, when Jim and I stayed in touch sporadically, but but attached over the years um it was so often to ask each other's advice on little things like that i've been going back through emails with him and messages and finding like a time in the mid-2000s when i asked him to read a project i was working on and he had just a few like great but small suggestions or he sent me a big long story and i wrote back one clause that I thought he should trim to make it move faster. And he was like, yes, perfect. That's exactly what I was looking for. Just little tiny ways to refine everything because he was such a, a perfectionist with his writing um, because he was so devoted to this idea always constantly that he, he needed to do justice to the people whose stories he was telling and he, and he needed to tell them 
well. Um, and so years go by and you know, he goes into teaching and I, I talked to his class once, um, which was a real kick to see how the students responded to Jim and how he was as great of a teacher with them as, as he had been with us as colleagues. But I hadn't talked to him probably in three or four years um, until I guess late in August of this year. Um, I'm at the New York Times now and, and earlier this year, I've been covering economic policy for the last decade in Washington. Um, and that's my, my job at the Times. But I, I also earlier this year got a second job, which is um, to, to do that from inside the White House team at the Times. And as part of how the White House team works, once every six weeks, we have basically a rotation where we have a reporter whose job it is, is just to sort of follow the president wherever he goes and write about whatever's happening with the president that week. And it just so happened to line up that I was starting that rotation week when um, we got a call from the White House on a weekend basically saying, hey, um, the president is going to go to Dover Air Force Base tomorrow to um, receive the bodies of 13 men and women, American service members who had been killed in Afghanistan. And um, it was our turn, the Times, to be on the plane with him. And so I realized that that meant I was going to be writing the story of the president receiving the bodies of very likely, and it turns out to be, the last Americans to die in a 20 year war. And, you know, that's really hard. <laughs> that is a really daunting assignment. And I, I had exactly one thought. I was just sort of sitting kind of like with my phone, like kind of shell shocked by the, oh my God, this is this, the weight of this assignment. And I just thought, I got to call Sheila. I got, he, he will know exactly what to do. And so I sent him a message and he responded right away. It was like, call me. And so I called him and he had only a few minutes. He was, he was running off to do something, but um, he knew right away what my problem and difficulty was with the story, which was feeling the weight of how do you write a piece that is true and, and fair and, and honoring really to the men and women who died and their families for whom, you know, this is a very difficult, solemn day, but who you can't talk to at all because they're shielded from you the way that this works at Dover. Uh, but also puts it in the context of the fact that these are the last service members to die in a 20 year war, which has killed thousands of, of people, um, uh, American and Afghanistan, Pakistani. And so you have to do all of that on deadline in, in a way that is true to the story, but also doesn't objectify the people who died. And Jim saw that. I didn't even have to tell him that he saw that conflict. We talked about, and he had advice on. Said, "Well, here's what you might think about writing about. Here's how you might think think about. You know, can you can you get to the families here? No, you can't. Okay, well, can you do this? Can you do that? Think about it this way." It was very calming, um, just to know that I was listening to the master of of the military funeral beat um, walk me through how to think about it. But then it totally floored me when he when I, I asked him a question about the procedures at Dover. And he said, oh, you know, I've never been to Dover. And I said, what? How have you never been to Dover? 
And it, it turns out, and I didn't realize this, the Bush administration had had a completely different policy back when Jim was writing those stories so often about whether reporters could could come to these um, transfers. Um, they're not even ceremonies, they're transfers of bodies, um, solemn transfers. And um, so Jim never was able to, to see it. And so I, that just, just the thought that like, oh, this is not just um, a, a shift, you know, not just the end of an era, but it's, but it's, but it's the end of an era that started in darkness for families that now families are able to see. And just that knowledge about Jim allowed me to ask some good questions, I think, to help make that story better. So it was, yeah. So I, I got up the next morning, I had to be at the White House at five in the morning, um, get on Air Force One, fly to Dover, um, spend some time talking to the people who run the press operation for the Air Force there, um, basically sit in a van and then watch this just incredibly I mean, it's very hard, very hard to watch ceremony, and which again, just sort of, I spent a lot of that time thinking about how Jim had watched so many of these, uh, you know, obviously slightly different, but so many families um, see the return of, of their fallen heroes. And, um, and it's just, it's, it's draining. And then to have to like race back onto the plane and write the story, um, which, which I, I finally did. And I sent it to Jim and, um, and you, you know, I have I have wonderful editors, um, and and a very good editor on the desk who who got right away uh, on that day what I was trying to do with the piece. I really just cared what Jim thought uh, about it because I I knew that he would have the the right answers, and he he noticed a couple things I hadn't, um, and uh, sort of about the writing, and and but he mostly just uh, you know gave me validation that it's how he would have handled it. Um, and uh, it was, again, I keep using this word, but it, it was so calming in the midst of all of that chaos to just know that like Jim was there with me, helping me with this piece, even though I hadn't seen him in more than a decade. Um, and, and I just think that is exactly the presence he was in my life, in, in other people's lives. Um, he just, he was encouraging. He was deeply, deeply empathetic. He was always a cheerleader. He was never jealous of anybody else's writing other than to say, Oh my gosh, I'm so jealous of that. It was so great. Like it never occurred to him that he was in competition with other writers. He just wanted to be the best writer possible. Um, and then he sent me, I'll read it to you. This, this final line um, from his, uh, you know, uh, response to my piece. Um, after going through a couple couple of details he liked, um, he said, "Quote: The writing is simple and wrenching, and I hate that you had to be there, that any of us did, but glad you were there." Sheila, and that. I mean, that's basically the the last gift he gave me, and I will be forever grateful. That was Jim Tankersley. He's a White House correspondent for the New York Times covering economics. I've linked to his story about the Biden trip to the Dover Air Force Base on our website. You can find that at gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N 
G-R-E-Y, the podcast.com. A special thanks to Jim Tankersley, Ben Montgomery, Josh Royland, Ann Nikoloff, Mike McKenna, Steve Knopper, Lane DeGregory, Wesley Lowry, and Tom French for talking with me about Jim. I wrote a piece about Jim for Neiman Storyboard. Go to that website and you will find my attempt to write the type of obituary that Jim wrote for so many others. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter. That's at Gangry Podcast. Gangry is spelled G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. You can subscribe to Gangry the Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any Google Play app. Just search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. Podcast. Gangry the Podcast is produced in the Integrated Media Labs at Fairfield University. It's made possible by the digital journalism and sports media programs, as well as the College of Arts and Sciences at Fairfield U. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us.